We have been looking at this obscure little book in the Old Testament, nestled right in the middle of the Minor Prophets, written 800 years before Christ, and yet has incredible timeless truths for us, the people of God, living under the grace and the mercy of Christ Jesus. It's a book, though, that's full of doom and gloom, and yet wisdom and warnings to a group of people that said that they were... God's people who said that they wanted to follow after God and yet were people who chose greed over godliness, prosperity over the needs of the poor, and made idols of human hands instead of worshiping the invisible God. And all of these willful decisions were made by people who professed a relationship with God, an allegiance to God, and presumed upon His grace and His provision. And as a result of that, it made God fume with anger. And as a result, God said judgment was coming, but His grace and mercy is seen throughout this book of doom and gloom because God picks a man named Amos, a shepherd from a place called Tekoa, which is about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. This little man from this little village who is a caretaker of sheep and sycamore trees was about to share the impending judgment of God with the ability and opportunity for the people of God to repent. Would they listen? The book of Amos is going to tell us the story. And so we find ourselves in Amos chapter 4 this morning where God continues His stinging indictment against the people by addressing two areas or people. Number one, the women of Israel. And second, the worshipers of Israel. And He's going to teach us great truths that we can learn about ourselves as well this morning. So let's look at Amos chapter 4. And as we do, we will read the entirety of the passage and then we will uh, ask for God's blessing on our time. So let's look to Amos chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible in the Pew Rack in front of you. You can find it on page 766. Here's what the Word of the Lord says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord your God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you, which they shall take you away with hooks, even the last one of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one of you straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places, yet... You did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you. And when there was yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and said no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the other of which did not have rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with the blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence, 
After the manner of Egypt, I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to the man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Let's pray. Father God, what an incredible passage of Scripture before us this morning. A passage of Scripture that reminds us that it is a a relationship that we have with you not to be trifled with. And yet, Lord, we are so comfortable and casual in our approach to you. So often we accuse the world, the sinners and the pagans of, of our world, for not taking you seriously. And yet, Lord, this Scripture is an indictment that your people don't take you seriously. The God who makes the morning darkness, who treads the heights of the earth, who creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, is a God that should be taken seriously. And yet, Lord, sadly, far too many of us, and myself included, do not take you as seriously as we ought. We do not revere you. We do not respect you. We do not honor you in the way that we ought to. And so, Lord, teach us from the example of the people of Israel, so that we may not follow in their footsteps, so we may not model our lives after theirs. Remind us of your grace. Remind us that you have called us over and over and over again. And let it not be said of us that we did not return to you. So teach us from your word this morning, we ask. We ask that your Holy Spirit would uh, change us as a result of what we hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1931, Gandhi was invited to dine with the King of England, King George V. Known for his humble approach to life and his trademark dress in a loincloth and sandals, it would cause great consternation and even trepidation for the royal officials. Knowing that there would be a stark contrast between the humble Indian man and the great figure that was the king, they knew that this would create issues within public opinion. And so the royal officials begged Gandhi to allow them to fit him in the best of English suits, of course, probably made with Indian cotton. But to pursue solidarity with his Indian brothers and sisters, Gandhi refused to wear anything but his trademark robe and sandals and responded when they said that he should worry about how little he will be wearing, Gandhi responded with a quip that I think is quite apropos. He said, don't worry about what I'm wearing. I think the king will be wearing enough for the both of us. You see, Gandhi knew and understood what it was to meet someone of great importance. 
and the great importance that we place on meeting someone, whether it's a public figure, whether it is our future father-in-law or mother-in-law, whether it's a new boss, whoever that individual is, when we are meeting someone important, we inevitably ask the question, what should I wear? How should I respond? How should I act? What should my body language be? Because we want to give away the best impression to that important figure before us than we would in any casual conversation. And yet this morning we have a text before us that shows us that God was meeting his people. And the problem was, was that the people of God did not think it altogether all that important for them to prepare themselves in order to meet their God. They approach God casually. They approach God comfortably. And as a result, they did not revere God or respect God or fear God in the way that they should. And as a result of that, God in His holiness, God in His power, God in His omnipotence is angered by this. You see, God demands our respect. He demands our reverence. Yes, in fact, He demands our worship. And when we buddy-buddy up to Him, and we act as if we're hanging out with one of our friends, God becomes angry because as the last part of the text says... Our God is the one who formed the mountains. Our God is the one who created the wind. Our God is the God who declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads the heights of the earth. That God, that God of hosts, Lord Sabbath, is his name. And when we begin to recognize and understand who God is, then we understand altogether how dreadful it is to think that we could approach God as if he is one of us. But that's exactly what the people of Israel did in Amos' day. They treated their interaction with God like it was any ordinary interaction with another human being. And God says, prepare to meet me. Prepare to meet me. Now, that's not only said in the book of Amos. In fact, God has been telling His people, prepare to meet me for a long time. The second to last verse in all of Scripture says, Behold, I am coming soon. Which tells us that at a time unknown to us, God is going to send His Son Christ, Jesus, to meet us. And the question is, in Luke 18.8, When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Where is he going to find us? What is he going to find us doing? Are we going to be faithful at the time of his coming? Or will we be, in fact, doing our own things in our own ways for our own agendas, ill-prepared for the coming of our Lord? Now, the Bible is full of warnings about the great importance of us being prepared. Multiple parables speak of this. Let me give you two examples. The parable first of the parable of the talents. A man, a rich man, gives his servants a different values of money. Some he gave five, others he gave two, and others he gave one talent. And he went away for a journey. Unknown of when he was going to come back, some of the servants did what they were supposed to, that is invest and create more talents as a result of the stewardship that they were given. And yet another individual was lazy, hid his talent, did nothing with what God asked of him. And when the master came back, he was called a worthless and lazy servant. 
And instead of experiencing the blessing of the master upon his coming, he received his judgment. Then there's the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for their bridegrooms. And they were to have oil in their lamps to be prepared at any time for their bride or their bridegroom to come and to take them to be a part of the wedding feast. The problem was some of the virgins did not have the requisite amount of oil in their lamps to be ready and prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. And because of it, the bridegroom uh, passed over them. He, he went away. Thus reminding us that we need to be prepared for the coming of our Lord. But let's remember that the coming of the Lord isn't something that theologians would simply say is eschatological. That is somewhere in the future. But because we gather in a place like this, we are told that when two or three of you gather, there I am with you also, that today we are in the presence of God. Today, in a very unique way, we are meeting God. And the question is, are we prepared in the daily interactions with our God to be prepared to meet Him. Now, right away, theologically, and this is important that I share this, that right away, if you are a child of God this morning, the doctrine of justification means that you are prepared to meet your God when it's with regards to your standing. That is, that there is now in Christ no condemnation for any Christ follower. The old is gone and the new has come. The love of Christ transcends any sin, any infraction. And because of that, we stand as sons and daughters of the Most High God. As a result, you and I can approach the throne of grace with confidence and with a full assurance of faith. But let's be reminded that there will be many on the day of judgment who will go in with that thought that I have been justified uh, because of things that I've done. And the Bible says on that great day in Matthew seven twenty one through 23, that many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this? Did I not do that? And Jesus will say, depart from me. So it's a great reminder that preparation means, first of all, getting right with God according to His grace and mercy, not our own good deeds. But there's also a judgment that the Bible talks about for the children of God. We will pass through the judgment that determines whether we are uh, saved from the wrath of God or not. And, and that has already been established because every person that calls upon the name of the Lord has had their name written in the Lamb's book of life. But there's a second judgment that will come. We call it the Bema Seat judgment, where we will stand before Christ and not give an account of whether we are in Christ or not, but it will have to do with what we did in light of the salvation we were given. What did we do in the body for the kingdom of God, for the work of God? In essence, how did we, in gratitude, live out the grace and mercy that God has bestowed upon us? And upon that, we will be given rewards and crowns. But it also says that some in that judgment will have their works pass through the fire and nothing will be left. You see, that is the day where many will hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, we all want to hear that. In fact, that's the great prayer that I have for you, my flock, my people, is that I will have prepared you that when you come to that beam of seat of Christ, that you will hear... Well done, good and faithful servant. 
But that is not a foregone conclusion. And the way that we get to hear that from God is by preparing to meet our God face to face. So how do we meet God? Well, I see three things in our text that show us how to meet God, and they're the exact opposite of what the people of Israel were doing. So we're going to look at their bad example so that we can have a good example of what we are to not do so that we can prepare, uh, prepare to meet our God. Well, what does it involve? It involves, first of all, hearing God's Word. Hearing God's Word. If we're going to be prepared to meet God, we've got to hear from God. And I want you to notice the first three words of the chapter. It says following. Hear this word. It's not the first time he's going to say it. In fact, if you turn the page to uh, chapter 3, verse 1, you see the same three words. Hear this word. You turn the page back and you look at chapter 5 and you see the same three words. Hear this word. Three times. God is going to announce to his people that he has something to say. In the rawest terms in the Hebrew language, and I know we've got children in here, but this is what God is saying. Shut up and listen. This is what God is saying. And he's saying it as if a mom or dad is calling out to a child who is simply or rebelliously talking and not listening. Shut your mouth and listen up. Now, Why do we need to shut up so that we can hear from God? God has something He wants to say. Three times He is going to say something of great importance to His people. But three times tells us that they didn't listen. I won't say who it was, but the member in my family was asked to go with me uh, to run some errands and do some things. And three times I called down to the uh, basement where one of my sons was playing a video game. And I said, hey, we're leaving in five minutes. Okay. Hey. <laughs> five minutes later. Hey, we've got to go. Time's a ticking. Let's go. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Third time. This is it. Your last call. I'm in the car. I'm leaving. Get in the car. Wait a couple minutes. I leave. Ten minutes later, phone call. Said child, where did you go? I told you I was coming. He wasn't listening. What was causing him not to listen? There are three things that I want you to know that will help you and I listen. The first one would have been helpful for my son, and that is to stop the noise. Stop the noise. You see, I was competing with a video game. And he had headphones on that didn't allow him to hear me clearly. The noise of having our phones and and the world at our hands through technology. The on-demand entertainment that we have. All of this is noise. And God is speaking. And he's saying, I want you to shut up and listen. Because I have something important to say. We will never hear it if there are other things drowning his voice out. Stop the noise. Number two, see the good. Write that down. See the good. The people of Israel would have listened the first time, not the third time, but the first time had they recognized the good that our God is speaking to us. Now this is important because all other gods that we see throughout Scripture are mute gods. They don't speak. 
They don't have anything to say. And here is the one true God speaking to His people and the audacity of the people to say, I've got other things to worry about. The God of the universe is speaking to us, His people today. And we say our entertainment, we say our schedules, we say other relationships are more important than God. We don't see the good that the God of the universe is speaking to us, His will and His plan for our lives. We don't see the good. And as a result, we don't listen. We see this in the married life. Husbands, we don't listen to our wives. Our wives are full of details, right? You ask a man, how was his day? It was good. That's all that needs to be said. You ask a woman, and I know I'm generalizing here, so don't kill your pastor, but I, but I ask my wife, how was her day? And she talks about the barometric pressure. She talks about the winds coming out of the northwest at six miles an hour, what the birds were chirping, and so on. And the problem is, is I begin to not listen. Why? Because I don't think, and I'm wrong in this, by the way, but I don't think these details are altogether that important. I don't see the good in them. One time I told my wife, I just don't have enough RAM. Not a right thing to say to your spouse. We don't listen because we don't think there's any value. It's not profitable for us to take in what is being said. This is what the children of Israel are doing, not with their spouse, not with their parents, but with God. And can it be said of us as well? The final thing that we need to understand with regards to hearing God's word, we need to stop the noise, we need to see the good, and we need to start a habit. Listen, listening to God will not happen on its own. Just as it doesn't happen in a marriage relationship, you've got to build lines of communication. And what that means with God is carving out and dedicating time where you create a habit, a discipline, in listening to God. Now listen, God is not going to uh, be able to uh, break through your ears if you're filling them with other things, God's going to say, you know what? You don't want it. I'll give you some warnings. You need to listen. And then you're on your own. God told the people of, of the book of Hebrews that they were dull of hearing. They couldn't hear. There was wax in their ears. And because of it, they couldn't hear God. So we need to do something to clean out our ears, to give God the proper space and time to be able to speak to us, because many times God does not speak in the way that we want Him to. Number two, God does not speak usually in the timetable that we expect Him to. And so it means that we're going to have to carve out time and attention. The people of Amos' day had not done that. And three times God announces to them, I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking to you. Then in chapter 4, he says, and I've given you all of these opportunities to see my hand at work. And yet he says, because you did not listen, you did not return to me. We will never repent of our sins. We will never return to God if we don't hear his clear leading and direction. And so we need to hear God's Word. That is how we prepare to meet Him. Number two, now that we've gotten past the first three words of the text, we need to honor God in worship. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. 
The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast into Harmon, declares the Lord. God turns His attention to the women, and He calls them cows. Now, I want to stop right away and say that is not the same way that you would think is spoken of today. To call someone a cow is to speak in a, a very pejorative way with regards to their physical appearance. That is not what God is saying. God is using a particular vernacular, a particular uh, idiom, metaphor, to communicate something eight centuries before Christ that we have no place of really understanding it without studying it. Let me give you an example. Uh, husbands, don't use the Song of Solomon as your point-by-point -point way of complimenting your wife and her body parts. Remember the Song of Solomon? Your neck is like the Tower of uh, Lebanon. Offer that to your wife. Okay? Offer that her teeth are like doves. See how that works. Different body parts are like fawns. It just doesn't work. Now we understand that there was something there because of the response of the, of the, of the wife that she falls in love with the words like that of honey of how she's being described, okay? But it doesn't work for us. We can't use that. Our wives would be offended and any romance that was there would have been long gone. But what God is speaking of is not a, a pejorative statement in the 21st century, but a pointed statement in the 8th century before Christ. He calls them the cows of Bashan. The cows of Bashan were the highest of the high in the agricultural world. The cows of Bashan, history tells us, were the best, most prized possession in a farmer's arsenal. And what that meant was, is they were to be pampered. The cows of Bashan were um, individuals, if you will, who were known, or were animals, who were known to be pampered darlings. They got everything that they wanted. They got everything they wanted at the expense of all the other animals. They were on the top of the food chain. And the reason was, is the cows of Bashan were known to be the most delectable meat once they were slaughtered. Important. And so what God is saying to the women of Israel is that women, you have allowed yourself to be uh, comforted and cared for where your needs are more important than the needs of everyone else around you. And he speaks specifically to the poor around them. Now, why does he call out the women that were living in such times and places of indulgence? Well, this is what he's calling out. They're self-indulgent. That's what he's saying. Now, why does he call out the women? He uses a ancient formula to speak to the culture. And it was known that as a culture found itself going down a downward spiral, that the last hope, the last bastion of right thinking, right living, right doing was the women of a culture. 
Paul does this in Romans chapter 1. Paul is talking, indicting the sinful world of their depravity and sin. And he talks about all the grievous things that are done. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, even the women have traded the natural for the unnatural. And so there's this idea that when the women go the wrong way, culture is lost. And so what is happening is, yes, this is an indictment to the women, but is an indictment to all of culture saying, you guys all have lost it. The last bastion of hope, the women, they themselves are self-indulgent. And he's speaking to the rich women of Israel saying that it is all about you. You get what you want and you are being fattened up for the day of slaughter. And as a result, what you've done is you've oppressed the poor and you've crushed the needy. And what this has to do with worship, and it's very important, you and I will never be able to worship God if we're self-indulgent, if it is about us. Can I tell you one of the great sins of the evangelical church today is we have at some point made the church service about us instead of being about God. And we have made worshipers consumers. And so in the, in the uh, evangelical world, we have people chopping around churches looking for what they want. You don't see that, just quite frankly, you don't see that in the Catholic faith. You don't see that in the Eastern Orthodox faith. But when it comes to Protestant evangelicalism, we don't stick around churches very long. And the reason why is many times we're looking for something that will appeal to us. Does the music do it for me? Does the preaching do it for me? Does does the children's ministry, are the buildings what they should be? And we find ourselves... In a consumeristic idea of what does worship do for me instead of what am I doing for God with regards to worship. These women could not focus in on their worship to God because they were too busy worshiping self. We have to beg to ask the question this morning, does our self-indulgence keep us from seeing God in the proper place of where He resides? And why he should be worshipped. Now notice, it moves on. And it deals with worship. So it deals with the women and now worship in verses 4 through 6. It says the following, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for you love to do... For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. You see, Amos turns to the worshipers, and like the women of Israel, he has nothing good to say to them. He addresses them for the sham that their worship is. Now notice he names two cities, Bethel and Gilgal. Very important cities in the land of Israel but not places that God had commanded His people to worship. Now let's just take a moment and you can answer for me, class. But where did God, what city in Israel did God call His people to come to to worship? Help me out. Jerusalem. Let's say it like we mean it. What city? Jerusalem. Where are they worshiping? Bethel and Gilgal. There's no Jerusalem. And the reason why is their politics 
had caused them to be a divided nation. And so King Jeroboam made the decision, well, we're not going to send our people down to Jerusalem to worship. Now, listen, the southern kingdom of Judah would have allowed that. He says, no, we're not going to do that. Our politics are more important than our worship. So what I will do in 1 Kings, let's see here so I can give you the right passage. 1 Kings 12, 32 and 33, Jeroboam makes a decision that he's going to build houses of worship in Gilgal and Bethel. And he says to his people, you go worship there. So instead of obeying God, now the people are obeying Jeroboam. But Jeroboam recognizes, because he gets clamor from his people, that there's other gods. They may not be as important as God Jehovah is, but let's put some of these gods that we've come to know and understand, let's put them, their idols, in the houses of God as well. And so that's exactly what they do. They place idols in the temples of God. And so what God says is, go to Gilgal, go to Bethel, and the only thing you're going to do in your times of worship is sin. You're going to make me angry. Now notice, they bring their sacrifices, their tithes, their sacrifice of thanksgiving, they proclaim free wills, they do all these things, and it says they love to do it, but they're missing the point. They're missing the point because while they love the tradition, they have fallen out of love with God. They, while they go to do religious experiences and experience, uh, seek to experience God, really they're there to experience the traditions made of men. Probably the best way to illustrate it, it would be hard for us now in the church and after Christ, but probably the best way to illustrate what they've done to their worship is what we've done to Christmas. You see, we, we love Christmas. But for many of us in, in, in Christianity, we've allowed so much of the other stuff of Christmas, which in and of itself isn't altogether bad, but we've allowed that to be the main point. So we go through a whole December and we celebrate all of the entrapments of, of the cultural holiday that we miss the Christ of the holiday. Does that make sense? God says, you're, you're celebrating Christmas, but you're not celebrating me. You see, you're celebrating religious activity, he says in Amos chapter 4, but you're not celebrating me. And, and because I'm the God, and I go back to the end of our passage, I am the God who created the wind, who formed the mountains, who declares man what his thoughts will be, that makes me angry. And I'm going to bring about judgment. Don't play games with me. So don't worship me in the way that you want. You see, these people were self-righteous. They thought they could pick the time and the places where they were going to worship, that they would pick how they were going to do it, who they were going to worship, and God was going to be okay with it. That's a casual approach to God. God, you should be happy I showed up today. So I'm going to do it my way. Who cares what you call me to? Who cares if you tell me I need to do one thing or another? You should be happy when I show up. And they were self-righteous in thinking that they could get away with it. And God says, no, you can't. And notice some of the phrases that he uses. He says, listen, you're going to be taken away with hooks. That is, you're going to be dragged away. And that prophecy will come to fruition when the Assyrians and the Babylonians carry the two nations of the people of God into exile. They're going to be dragged away. And they're going to be forced 
to worship false gods. They're going to be at a time, later in this text, they're going to be asked and called to bow down to a statue of a king. They're going to be dragged away and demanded to worship. And here's the funny thing, they'll do it. And yet the God who gave them life, the God who gave them breath, the God who gave them all that they need, who has been talking to them all along the way, they don't have enough time or enough energy to worship God as they should. Here's the amazing thing. We are worshiping something in our day. We are worshipers. God has created us to be worshipers. And the question is, what are we worshiping? And maybe today you're sitting there saying, well, I'm worshiping God. Well, when it's convenient. I worship God when I've got nothing else better to do. I worship God when, when, when I need Him. You're being self-indulgent, and you're, and then you're saying, well, I'm good with God. I went to church. I gave a little. I participate in this. I'm good with God. And God's sitting there, and he may be saying to you today, your worship is a sham because it isn't about me. It's about you. It's about you. You're not worshiping him. You and I, in that stance, are worshiping ourselves. And God says, like cows of Bashan, you're being fattened for the slaughter. Be very, very careful. And so we see we need to hear the word of God. We need to honor God in our worship. And notice finally we need to heed his warnings. In verses 6 through 13, God gives five different circumstances that he points out and says, hey, that was me. That was me. I don't want you to think it was happenstance. I don't want you to think it was just weather patterns. I don't want you to think it was just bad things happened to good people. That was me. I did that. I brought that. And it was a warning to you. So notice what he says. He says that he gave them lack of bread. He withheld rain. He caused famine where people would try to drink, and even when they drank, they weren't satisfied. He says that he struck them with blight and mildew, verse 9. That their gardens and vineyards, fig trees, olive trees, all were devoured by the locusts. Pestilence came. War came where young men were killed by the sword, where people were carried away by horses, where the very stench of decay and death climbed up into their nostrils. That he even overthrew them, like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. See, God is saying, all of that I did. The calamity that he talked about in chapter 3, that he would bring a city, he says, listen, five different times, I, I have brought you warnings. But you did not, because you did not listen, you did not return to me. How stiff-necked could they be? God says, listen, all of these were warnings, and they're warnings of something bigger that is going to take place. Over the last couple days, Southern California experienced, uh, for the first time in a long time, a 6.4 earthquake. And right away, the geologists came out and said, listen, this is just a preview. There's a bigger one coming, which I'm like, how in the world do they know that, right? That's way ahead of my pay grade. And truth be told, what happened? 24 hours later, a 7.1 earthquake took place. 
And they're saying now that there's even a probability that there may be even a greater earthquake that is taking place. That these are previews of the big one that is to come. So be ready. Be prepared. Know what you're going to do in that moment. Well, what God is doing is God's saying, here's 6.4 in verses 6 through 13. Then he says, here's a 7.1, but there's a 10. Point five or whatever number you want to come with that's coming in the time to come. And are you prepared? And by my grace, I've given you some pre-shocks so you're ready for the big one. And so he's shown them all these times. And each time that the world around them would begin to quake, they would not listen. They would not return. And so God's judgment is coming upon them. Even though he gave time and gave grace, they would not listen. So what does that do for us? God is giving us warnings. Even His people, under grace, under mercy, warnings. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is a book dedicated to warning the people of God not to fall into spiritual neglect or spiritual distraction that would cause them to walk away from truth. And so we're to heed warning. So how are we to do it? Let me give you a couple examples, and then I want to close this out with one practical truth for you this morning. First of all, we heed the warnings of God by looking at the examples of others. Look to the examples of others. Now, what I mean by that is we need to be people watching. I love to sit in a public place and watch people. I don't know what it is about me. I hope it doesn't make me look crazy. But I love just watching the interactions of people. There's something, it's better than TV many times. But I want to let you know that I want you to do people watching with regards to their lives. To look at people's lives and to ask the question, do I really want to go down that road? Now let's look at the lives of the celebrities around us. You see, we see all of the positives, but look at the multiple marriages. Look at the the heartbreak and the sorrow. Look at the loss of riches and the struggle that comes, the loss of relationships. Do you want that kind of self-indulgent life that leads you down that road? My hope would be as you watch it, you'd say, I don't want that. That seems like foolishness. Listen, one of the reasons, there's two reasons I will say that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Number one, the grace of Almighty God and His mercy But the second is two people in my life who I looked at their manner of life, their way of life, and I said, I want that. The first one is my parents. My parents weren't rich. They weren't famous. They weren't highly educated individuals. They were just hardworking people. And yet what I came to recognize is they loved the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I sat there and said, I, I want to be like that. Because I saw the, the fortitude that when trials came, the joy that they could experience. I, I saw their ability to transcend situations with hope where there seemed to be no hope. And I said, I want that kind of ballast in my boat when the storms of life come. And I want to be like my mom and dad. And I remember it was at 14 years of age that I came to that realization. The second person was the youth pastor that I had at this church. 
And again, not a, a humble man, a, a, a man that will never be known of uh, a, a man of greatness. And yet I watched him and I watched how he loved his wife and I watched how he loved his children and I watched the joy that he had of being a man after God's own heart. And I said, you know what? I want to be that kind of guy. I like the outcome, the manner of the life that they're living. And so one of the ways we do it is we watch the ungodly as they leave, live their lives and lead their lives. And we look and we say, as I look at the outcome of their life, no, I don't want that. There's a, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end leads to destruction. And that's what I see with that manner of life. And then I look to the godly, and while they might not experience all the things from an earthly standpoint, they're faithful and they're true. And they're following God and they're experiencing His love and His grace and His mercy on a daily basis. Are you heeding the warnings that God is giving through the lives of people? Number two, are you doing it through the ex exhortation of Scripture? That is the many, many warnings that Scripture gives. Don't go this way, head that way. As I just said, there's a way that seems right to man, leads to destruction. But there's a narrow way that leads to God. Go in that direction. And so God is warning us through His Word, I'm coming, are you ready to meet me? And we can follow the example of others, either in the good or the bad, and be ready or not ready to meet God. And we can also heed the exhortation of Scripture that says that we should be preparing ourselves so that when the Son of Man comes, He will in our lives find faith on the earth. So how is it that we prepare to meet God. I've got five minutes left and we'll close in that amount of time. How do we prepare to meet God? We know that there's a day coming where we will stand before God. We will appear before Him. How do we ready ourselves? I, I want to give you something that you can take away from because real easy will say, well, it may be today, but probably not. So I've got time to prepare. Well, here's where you prepare. Sunday morning is the time you prepare to meet God. This is the practice. God says, I don't want you to forsake the assembling together. Why? Because in it is a opportunity for us to prepare for what it's going to be like to meet God face to face. So let me ask you three questions as we close. With regards to it, how prepared were you today to meet God? No, you didn't meet Him face to face, but you came with the direct purpose of worshiping Him and seeing Him face to face and hearing His Word taught to you so that you might be changed. How prepared were you? In the Badal family, preparation for Sunday can never start on Sunday because we always fail in that. We're at each other's throats, nothing is ready, we're late. And so preparation for us begins on Saturday. What does our Saturday activities look like? Because we want to meet God on Sunday. And we won't be ready to meet God on Sunday with God's people in a unique opportunity that God has given us once a week. We're never going to be ready for that if we're not ready on Saturday. And so our activities are going to be modified to determine what we're going to do on Sunday. And so Saturday night is not a late night for the Badal family. It's a night where we get to bed, and we get to bed early, so we're ready. Clothes are out, ready to go. What are we wearing tomorrow? What's breakfast look like for tomorrow? You say, well, that's all fun and good. Well, why? Because we want to meet God. And Amanda and I want to show our three boys what it means to meet God in the company of His people. How prepared were you this morning? Were you ready like the fertile ground that Jesus talks about, the soil that is ready to receive the Word of God? 
that you prepared yourself. God, you're going to speak to me this morning. God, you're going to give me opportunity to speak in the lives of people. I want to be ready, Lord. So I want to get some time away with you and be prepared. You cannot do that when you're running out the door frazzled. How passionate were you this morning? I'm going to get to see God. I get to be with God's people. I don't have to do it. I get to do it. In the sporting world, fans are so excited for the actual event that they throw a party before the event even starts. We call it tailgating. And yet the people of God were late. And I don't just mean late in time, but we're late in, in showing up and being passionate about it. In, 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 in uh, sporting events, we're wearing our gear, we're excited. And yet for many of us, we come and, and we're cold as fish and say, okay, God, now I'm here, bless me. God, change me. I'm not ready, I'm not passionate, but you do your magic. How prepared are we? How passionate are we? And how much do we participate? How much do we participate? Is it something that we look for others to do for us? Or is it something we're going to be a part of? So let me ask you this morning, you came in to meet God. How did you participate in that work? Again, it's not us sitting back and saying, okay, God, now I'm here. Now you do something for me. Worship is our response to God for what He has done. That means we've got to work up a sweat. We've got to lean into it. We've got to become prepared. And, and, and one of the things, listen, and this is so very important that you recognize, in no way am I propping myself up with regards to this, but the preacher and the worship team and the elder who, who did communion are all pictures of what we should be doing. Here's the thing. If I got up this morning, or Dave did, or the worship team did, and, and I said, you know what? I, I, I got nothing for you today. You know, I, I thought I was going to have time, and Saturday got away from me. I know we're in Amos, but I look at Amos 4, I got nothing. The cow, don't be a cow. That's what the text is saying. You would say, how, how dare you, Tim? You, you, your job is to come prepared. I came with the anticipation you were going to teach me something, and I will tell you, yes, it is my job to come prepared. But is it not your job as well? Are we not all priests of God? And so, so the worship team, Dave, our elder, and your teaching pastor here have all modeled for you that to do it well takes preparation. To do it well takes passion. To do it well means we've got to be involved in participating in it. And so I speak to the congregation with love and mercy in my heart. Are you prepared to meet your God each and every Sunday? And if you're not prepared to meet your God each and every Sunday, then you will not be ready on that great day to meet Him as you want to. And so God says, with grace and love and mercy, return to me. Heed my warnings, hear my word, and honor me in the worship that I've called you to give to me.